Hey guys, Amanda here. Before we get started, I want to take a moment to tell you about apartment life. Did you know that 95% of people living in apartments aren't connected to a local church? Our friends at Apartment Life bring believers into apartment communities to host events and care for fellow residents in times of need. Those experiences can open the door to meet people right where they are with the hope of the gospel, even in a pandemic. Apartment Life has connected more than 65,000 residents with a local church over the last 20 years. If you're passionate about loving your neighbors, visit apartmentlife.org slash she reads truth for all the details. Okay, let's get to the show. Hello and welcome to the She Reads Truth podcast, where we open our Bibles and talk about the beauty, goodness, and truth we find there. I'm your host, Amanda Bible Williams. And I'm your other host, Rachel Myers. And today we are joined by a college professor which is always a treat, especially in the content that we're going to be reading today from that third portion of the book of Daniel. Dr. Daniel Hayes is joining us. He's a professor at Washita Baptist University. He and his colleague, Scott Duvall, wrote the book that we enjoyed so much for our Presence of God study called God's Relational Presence. Not only that, he has another book coming out this very month called A Christian's Guide to Evidence for the Bible, 101 Proofs from History and Archaeology. Y'all, Dr. Hayes is truly a college professor, and he focuses on Old Testament history. I can't believe that we get to sit down with him and unpack something that feels pretty daunting to Amanda and me, but he does such a beautiful job of just teaching us. Like, this is the kind of thing that you have to pay for, and we get it just out of the goodness of his heart. So let's get right to it. It's going to be a great episode. Well, I am so curious about your background. I can't quite tell because we're on Zoom if that's actually the room that you're in or if you have something set up behind you. That's the Ishtar Gate from Babylon. Okay, okay. I wonder. uh, They excavated it. The Germans excavated it and reassembled it in Berlin. So in a museum in Berlin, they have put together this ceramic tile. And so that was the gate Daniel would have walked probably wouldn't have used this gate because it was for religious purposes, but gives you an idea of the splendor and glory of ancient Babylon there. So anyway, so as long as we're on Daniel, I pull up my virtual screen for Daniel. I had a feeling this was thematic. I love this so much. We're going to put a photo in the show notes so that our listeners can see what we're seeing right now. But you are our first guest to have a thematic background to our reading. I love it. Anytime I'm on Zoom, you know, I teach Sunday school each week and stuff. So I always try to pull out, you know, I have a pretty good library of pictures and stuff. So I got a green screen behind me over my books so I can put these pictures up. So, so yeah, this was the called the Ishtar <laughs> that Gate. That is fantastic. Uh, so delighted. Well, when you asked, I thought you meant his background. Oh, oh like his but, personal. Yes, because I am curious about yeah. your background because you and your wife were missionaries. We were. For a time in, in the 80s, is that right? Yeah, you know, I'm an Air Force kid, so I kind of grew up all over and then finished high school in New Mexico, then went to seminary at Dallas Seminary and, you know, after college at New Mexico State. Met my wife there in Dallas, and so then we got married. So when we finished at Dallas Seminary, then we went to Ethiopia with Sudan Interior Mission, called SIM now, and spent, yeah, five years. We had five wonderful years there in southern Ethiopia. Wow. Wow. And now— It was good years. We had two kids, you know, small kids at the same time while we were there. So, oh, wow. But, but they loved it. You know, it was a good experience for them. And so, yeah, they had a wonderful time there, wonderful people, a Christian strong church there in Ethiopia. That's wonderful. And now you are an Old Testament scholar, among other things, and a professor and a dean. And a dean. I am. Yeah. Mostly I like being a professor, you know. It's just fun to teach. (laughs) It's fun to teach college kids. I love it. Have loved it for a long time. I can't think of any better discipleship format than we get students when they're 18 and we have them till they're 22. And so those years are formative and we've got them for four years. We have a big staff that can pour into them and engage and watch them grow and mature in so many different ways. And so it's just one of the most rewarding things I can imagine. And so we love it. And we train them and launch them out there and watch them turn the world upside down for Jesus. And they come back and see us and talk to us, you know, as the years go by. So it's just a fantastic job to have. 
And we have one of your students here on staff leading the charge at She Reads Truth, Jessica Lim, our editorial director. So I thank you for the work that you did to invest in her. Yeah. And by proxy, investing in us. Yeah, Yeah. well, we loved having Jess here and her husband, Taylor, too. You know, we had the two of them. We watched them start courting. Uh, (laughs) uh, We were going on an overseas trip on one of our biblical studies trips, I think, to Turkey. And they were engaged then. And they had an odd number of rooms to where the matchup, the guys and girls didn't match up right. So I suggested, well, why don't you guys go ahead and get married? So it'll work out our rooming <laughs> assignment a little better. So Jess didn't go for that at all. You know, yeah, they had the whole say, wedding plan. You know, they had a big for logistical plan. reasons. <laughs> but anyway, so that was the joke with them when, back when they were students. Well, we want to be your college students today. And yes. we, I mean, this is quite a task for us to sit down, the three of us, and talk about this third portion of the book of Daniel. And we are just so excited, honestly, to sit as your students and hear from you. And even before we get into specifically the book of Daniel, will you just talk to us a little bit, Dr. Hayes, about Old Testament prophecy and why it's important to read that? Yeah, the prophets, you know, the old T prophets in general are, they're the bridge, you know, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And the Old Testament prophets are going to confront Israel and tell them, you guys have broken this old covenant and you're in serious trouble. And the judgments that are in the book of Deuteronomy, you know, are coming. So you'd better repent. So they call them to repentance. So the main point the prophets make is you've broken this covenant, you'd better repent. But then there is no repentance. And so the prophets then will prophesy judgment, this terrible judgment that's coming. Israel's going to get kicked out of the promised land. But beyond that, then now's where they connect with the New Testament. They'll say, but in the future, there's this wonderful future hope and restoration where God's going to send the Messiah and, and there's going to be a new covenant and a new exodus and a new coming righteous king. And everything's going to be bigger and better as it finds fulfillment in the coming Messiah. And so all of those then point in Christ then starts to fulfill all of those as soon as he shows up. Daniel is a little bit different in the sense that, yeah. you know, he doesn't have the same message as the traditional prophets. He's looking more at just big world empires, and he's looking at the bigger picture, really, of God's sovereign rule and God's sovereign control. So he rarely sounds like the rest of the prophets. Chapter nine's an exception. That's the only place where he sounds like Jeremiah. But the rest of the time, he's dealing with some different things. And then we get into even style-wise, the section we're dealing with today, he's using apocalyptic genre, we call that. And it's just a different literary style. You know, in the regular prophets, they'll compare God to a lion. Okay, so they use, you know, figures. But Daniel, you know, now you got a beast with four heads. You know, now you got these bizarre, you know, you just have a lot of bizarre things. And so that's the shift from regular poetic metaphors, like God is like a lion, like Amos uses, to Mm -hmm. Daniel's apocalyptic, where things are a little more bizarre, a little more symbolic. You have a little more representation. You're going to find angels, usually in apocalyptic literature, guiding the person who's seeing the visions. You have someone who comes and explains them to you. That's a pretty typical feature of apocalyptic type literature. And again, you see that in Daniel, as you do in Revelation and some of the other apocalyptic books we know of. So as we are transitioning from the more narrative part of Daniel and where we do have these visions and these dreams, but into the apocalyptic portion, how do we as readers... What gears do we need to shift? Like, I hear what you're saying about the metaphor. Yeah, no, that's a great perceptive question to ask the question and to realize it is a shift. It is mm-hmm. different. Yeah, those first six chapters, and generally we spend a lot more time in those first six chapters. Okay, You because, don't see a lot of flannel graph of the, of the later chapters. No, <laughs> no, they don't. And the first six chapters, too, are so relevant quickly. You know, here's a young person standing firm in his faith Mm -hmm. with overwhelming cultural, you know, things trying to sweep him away. So that's easier to grasp. But now when we switch to the second half, I think it's helpful to see God's got a bigger picture for us. And he wants to show Mm -hmm. that even though these kingdoms that are have overpowered, you know, Israel, Jerusalem's been destroyed. They've been hauled off into Babylon and they're seeing like this big gate behind me, they see these wonderful, powerful, how powerful Babylon is and how great they are and the gods of the Babylonians. 
that God is now telling them, hey, this is part of my unfolding plan, that there's going to be a series of kingdoms. That's the nature of human existence here, but they're not the final word. The final word is that I'm going to come with the final kingdom and set up the final kingdom and will bring all of these others into account. And I'm going to give you a glimpse of that. He gives Daniel a glimpse of what's coming. And then, of course, still with this focus of the Ancient of Days that's going to come and the Son of Man coming, you know, all of these things that Christ fulfills with the coming of the Son of Man. You guys looked at that last week, I guess. Yes. Well, I would love for us to read a little bit. Yeah. And let's dig in a bit and see what we can find. We're starting this week's reading. It's day 15 if you're reading through the reading plan, but we're starting in Daniel 8. We've got one king after the next, and it gets a little bit, you have to kind of stop and figure out, okay, who's in charge here? <laughs> What's going on? And so, and at the same time, we get the loud and clear message of who is actually in charge here. This which is, is, that's yeah. a great point. <laughs> and so this is, as Daniel 8.1 tells us, the third year of King Belshazzar's reign. And Daniel is going to see a vision. So I got to ask, Belshazzar, he was the king with the handwriting on the wall, correct? Right. Is that right, Dr. Hayes? So we're kind of rewinding a little bit. Right, yeah. And he's not going to always be in chronological order here, you know, at the end. And you've already seen Belshazzar. We've already had that. And the Persians come, remember, that's when that's yes. when Babylon and falls. And then Darius takes over. Right. And he's not even the regular king, okay? Belshazzar's kind of filling in for Nabonidus, who's gone to a monastery-like place in the countryside. And so Belshazzar's filling in, okay? And they're okay. calling him king. But one of the things I like in Daniel about them mentioning the kings all the time is that, especially like in some of your earlier ones you looked at last week, to show that while those kings are there and people tremble, you know, when their names are mentioned, that God shows his power and his sovereignty over them repeatedly, mm -hmm. repeatedly, you know. Nebuchadnezzar can't kill those guys in his backyard, you know. He destroyed Jerusalem, but he can't kill those guys in his furnace. He doesn't have that power to do that. And so I think that's one of the reasons we see these kings mentioned so frequently through here is it's just a reminder that in light of these overwhelming human kingdoms, that God's kingdom is going to come and replace these and will be the supreme one. Yeah, that's great. So you're right, Amanda. It's third year of Belshazzar. Right, so and this is before the handwriting on the wall because we know what happens right the, after the that. The very night dies. of the handwriting yes. on the wall. Okay, and so this is before the lion's den as well. Right, this is about 551, and the Belshazzar's writing is going to be about 539. Okay. And so we're quite a number of years, you know, earlier than that, if you're putting it chronologically back together. Okay, that's fascinating because that gives us context that this happened to Daniel before the lion's den. Right. He had this knowledge before the lion's den. Okay. And that knowledge that you speak of, <laughs> it comes from a vision of... Like you said earlier, Dr. Hayes, there's some bizarre stuff going on, but we have a ram and we have a goat and there are phrases repeated like, you know, the goat acted arrogantly and then it acted even more arrogantly and we have horns. All kinds of things are happening here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we have the vision, which you can read there at the beginning of Daniel 8. But in 15, we have someone new show up on the scene that yeah, we, we have do. not yet seen in the book of Daniel. Anywhere in scripture yet. <gasps> is that true? It is very true. We only see this. I've done some research. So we get, Gab we get Gabriel yes. here. And yes. the only time Gabriel is mentioned in scripture, two times in the book of Daniel, and mm -hmm. then twice in the book of Luke to announce the births of John the Baptist and Jesus. Those are his moments. Those are his scenes. It's a pretty big deal. Yeah. So we have in 8, this is verse 15, while I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, which again, we talked about last week, how we feel a camaraderie with Daniel because even he doesn't understand yeah. everything that he's seeing, right? There stood before me someone who appeared to be a man. I heard a human voice calling from the middle of the... Ulai. Ulai. Yeah. Okay. Sure. That's the canal, the that big canal there. Yeah. It's a water canal. He okay. mentioned that earlier. All right, keep going. <laughs> Got it. Gabriel, explain the vision to this man. So he approached where I was standing. When he came near, I was terrified and fell face down. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision refers to the time of the end. And then he continues to speak. Well, 
Daniel falls asleep. He says, wake up. And he (laughs) continues to speak and to interpret this vision. And so, Dr. Hayes, are you saying that one of the things that is characteristic of apocalyptic literature is where there are angels kind of coming in and explaining things? Right. And you see that in Ezekiel. He has an angel show him around. You're going to see it in Revelation where an angel comes and explains things. And so, yeah, it's a normal feature. You have some kind of guide, an angelic kind of guide that explains things to you. And we're glad for I mean, the explanation. About, Otherwise, oh. we wouldn't know what's going on here either. You know, so it's, oh, it's yeah, those few truly. times when we get an explanation are one of the few times, I think, when we can say confidently, this is what this means. You know, otherwise, we're speculating on what these visions mean sometimes. So this is a gift. Talk to us. Is there any significance here with Gabriel being present with Daniel for this and then only ever again being mentioned in Luke? Yeah, boy, I don't know. You know, we would love to know a lot about the angels and to be able to say this is the angelic world and this is the hierarchy and all that stuff. But what you're realizing and concluding, and you're absolutely right, is we don't have a whole lot of information. And we have a little snippet of a verse here and there. And so to try to go from that to conclude, here's how the whole angelic world works— I think, boy, it's a high risk. That's a high risk operation, uh, and we just don't know a lot. We don't, you know. I tell the students once you move outside our little realm, okay, of the physical, and you move into the spiritual realm, we don't know schmatz. We have a limited understanding, <laughs> and we embrace what we see, and it's a kind of spectacular. You know, it's unusual. It's important. You get the idea. This must be very, very important if he only shows up again at the birth of Christ, that he is, you know, bringing something significant. But who exactly is he, and what exactly does he look like, and what's his role? And, you know, Hollywood runs with these things, and there's always— you know, uh, stories and myths and things about the angels. And it shows up and sometimes in other literature, but we just don't know much. And it rattles Daniel, you know, so he's not, you know. Yes, it does. You see angels like back in Genesis who come and talk to Abraham. They look like regular people. And so clearly this revelation's a little bit different. This appearance a little different. And he tells Daniel that this is, in verse 19, he says, I'm here to tell you, what will happen at the conclusion of the time of wrath, because it refers to an appointed time of the end. And then he goes on to say the two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the king of Greece. And the large horn between his eyes represents the first king. The four horns that took the place of the broken horn represent four kingdoms. They will rise from that nation, but without its power. They tell us, okay, great. You know, the two-horned ram is the Medes and the Persians. Okay, well, we can peg this into history. You guys have already discussed Cyrus, who comes, replaces the Babylonians and conquers them. And so they're going to call that the Medes and the Persians. Okay, so, well, then, you know, next in history, if you're students of world history, you realize that the Greeks then are going to start fighting. The Persians are going to try to invade Greece, and the Greeks are going to stop them. But then shortly after, coming from Greece is going to be Alexander the Great. And so this is a historical, when they says the shaggy goats, the king of Greece, this is going to be Alexander. And we're pretty sure that's the case because mm-hmm. the four horns that represent four kingdoms, we know that when Alexander dies, his four generals then split up his empire. And so the four generals of Alexander the Great are going to split up the empire And they're going to play major roles over the next several hundred years. And now we're in the intertestamental period, okay? That's the, I mean, the Bible's going to end, okay? Ezra and Nehemiah kind of at the end is going to end in the 5th century in the 400s. Alexander's going to come 330 in the 300s. And then the events that are going to transpire here, they're going to keep describing things that happen even on into the second century in the 100s in this intertestamental period. And this gets more so when we get to chapter 11, okay? As they go on and on and on in 11, king of the north, king of the south. Right. These are those descendants of Alexander that are being introduced here, those kings that will continue to rule. And so just kind of as an overview, historically, we have these books of First and Second Maccabees, Okay, those are in Catholic Bibles, but not Protestant Bibles. So we don't view them as Protestants. We don't view them as inspired. 
but they're pretty solid historically, and they give us a history of what's going on in Israel during this intertestamental period between the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the New. And they give us all of this history of these kings, the descendants of Alexander, especially the Seleucid kings. They're kind of in the northern area called the North King. The Ptolemies, Cleopatra was one of these Ptolemies, later descendant of them down in Egypt. And so they're fighting each other and going back and forth. And so Daniel's going to talk a lot about things that seem to be fulfilled by those people during this particular time. The question is, of course, and what gets interesting is that when he talks about the fierce-looking king, all right, in 23, this one who comes up that Uh suddenly looks very different, kind of the all-time prototypical bad guy, Okay, it's going to show up, and he's going to show up a couple of places here in these latter chapters. And this is Antiochus Epiphanes, they call him, Antiochus IV. And he's going to be king from 175 to 163 B.C. So here on the second— Not a long time. No, he's not, but he does a tremendous amount of damage and tries to do away with the entire Jewish faith and impose a Greco-Roman worship and belief on the Jews— And what's fascinating then is Daniel's given us some pretty detailed prophecy of some things that are several hundred years down the road. And some scholars will say, well, it must have been written after these events or in the time of those Hmm. events. So you always get some scholars who try to push the date of Daniel later because there's all of these Hmm. really, really detailed things that he describes that take place around the year 165. But on the other hand, you know, come on, this is God. He's given prophecy. He can see (laughs) what's going on if he wants to tell Daniel what's happening, then certainly he can. So I don't have any problems with this being, you know, pure prophecy. But the specificity of it with Antiochus and what he does, and especially over in chapter 11, is pretty remarkable as far as if we read around in 1st, 2nd Maccabees and then what actually happens with how Daniel describes that. Yeah. But Antiochus is at the center of this, okay? He's the bad guy. And then yet as we continue on through and he shows up and we can touch on those texts as we get to him, but he's going to seem to represent more than just this historical character. So okay. prophetically, I think we're going to see what I'm going to call typology here. Yeah, that, okay. Or what we call sometimes a near view and a far view fulfillment. That sometimes okay. the prophets will talk about something in their prophecy and we'll see something pretty quickly that fulfills that. But then sometimes we see that it's bigger than that, that it's representative, and there's a further fulfillment off in the future that might be symbolized by this first person. So Daniel's going to say several things about Antiochus, and he's going to come, he's the desecration of, and all of this kind of stuff that he does. 175, 163 fulfills those. Then Jesus is going to come along and allude to this same destruction, this desolation of abomination, and refer back to Daniel, but then Jesus is going to talk about this in the future still, that somebody else is coming. And this is where we pick up the Antichrist figure. And so the New Testament's going to latch on. There is this coming, you know, ultimate opposition, enemy of God and his plan, this Antichrist figure. And so he seems to be identified, talk about Antiochus and take those same prophecies and say, this also seems to refer to the coming Antichrist in the future. So that's what makes Daniel a little challenging, is that he's describing things that are going to clearly happen in the second century, and then Jesus is going to come refer back to those same events and tell us some of this stuff's going to really unfold in the future, the ultimate end of time. Yeah, which is why we want to at least read it and know that it's there because Jesus is going to have a conversation with right with the Old Testament and we want to know and with the prophets mm-hmm. and he's going to allude, you know refer back and we're going to want to understand or have those echoes in our mind as we're reading the New Testament of the old. And I like verse twenty seven. You alluded to this yeah. already, where Daniel says it was beyond understanding. You know. And so Daniel is there. The guy, Gabriel, explains it to him. Daniel's pretty smart. You know, he's seen a lot of stuff. But even then, he says, not sure I quite got it all. Yeah. Let's read it. That section in chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. 
We read that for us, Ray? So this is that last bit of the interpretation of the vision. And this is what you, Dr. Hayes, were just talking about. Right. It says, near the end of their kingdoms, when the rebels have reached the full measure of their sin, a ruthless king skilled in intrigue will come to the throne. And this is the guy you were talking about. What's his name? Antiochus the Fourth. Thank you. Our Antiochus, Antiochus. Epiphanes, yeah. Okay. And it says, his power will be great, but it will not be his own. He will cause outrageous destruction and succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the powerful along with the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper through his cunning and by his influence. And in his own mind, he will exalt himself. He will destroy many in a time of peace. He will even stand against the prince of princes. This is God. Yet he will be broken, not by human hands. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. Now you are to seal up the vision because it refers to many days in the future. And then it says, I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for days. Then, and I love this, I got up and went about the king's business. I was greatly disturbed by the vision could not understand it. The little bit of like, I got up and I went about the king's business is <laughs> fascinating and like yep. a little, I want to say comical, but it's not. But it's so interesting to me because What's happening is he's learning about the future, but he's also living in the present. Right. He's got a job, you know. He has to get up and go to work. After that vision, I got to get up and go to work. Really? I got to go to work. I think that it's so interesting because I got so excited about like, oh, like this happened and he was overwhelmed and then he went about his business. Like he went to work. But like it feels helpful for me to see this following that, that he didn't just get up and go about the king's business. There were two responses. One was to get up and carry on, but the other one that really we're going to give a lot of real estate to is he prays. Well, but I'm not sure how, like how quickly after that vision is this? You know, I'm not oh, sure. That's a good question. I mean, it's definitely still if it's chronological. 12 maybe. years, okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. So 12 so, years he's been going about the business, you know. And then oh, wow. at that's the end, if you're trying to put the front back in here chronologically, okay. So he has his vision in chapter 8 at 551. And then you've got Belshazzar and the writing on the wall that's going to happen right before chapter 9. Okay. okay, so that's the end of Belshazzar's reign. He dies. The Got Persians it. come in, take over, and then they say 9-1, the first year of Darius. So this is yep. right after, chronologically, the handwriting scene. After the handwriting, before the lion's den. Right. Okay, so Daniel 9, verse 2, in the first year of his, Darius's reign, I, Daniel, understood from the books according to the word of the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah that the number of years for the desolation of Jerusalem would be 70. So this is what we, at Sheer Truth, would say, Daniel knew his Bible. So Daniel knew this from the book of Jeremiah, from mm-hmm. the prophet. Yeah, Jeremiah's going to make that statement twice, actually, and then it's going to be picked up in a couple of places. And several other biblical places are going to quote it, not just Daniel. But Daniel is going to quote it, then it's going to be quoted in Second Chronicles as well. Okay. So Jeremiah first says this in 29.10, that he'll come back and that after 70 years are completed for Babylon, and that's pretty vague by what he means by completed for Babylon, I will come to you, fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. Yeah, before I know the plans. Yeah. Remember when Daniel, the exiles in Jeremiah's time, think they're going to come home real quick. And so yeah. they're in exile. They got false prophets telling them, we're going to go home in two years. So Jeremiah writes this letter in 29. You know, These are the plans I have for you, you know, plans to prosper. Right. And what it, part of that is, no, it's going to be 70 years. So settle down, right. build, plan. I know the plans and here they are, yeah. 70 years. And so that's yeah. where Jeremiah makes that statement. It's a little vague as far as exactly what is the 70 years. What that means. When yeah. is the start and when is the stop. But it got... Yeah. Daniel's attention when Babylon is captured. He sees that as somehow signaling this 70-year period. Hey friends, Amanda here. We want to take a quick break to tell you about Wycliffe Bible Translators. Being able to understand the Bible in our own language is so important to anchor us in our God-given value. But millions of women around the world still don't have that ability. Wycliffe Bible Translators advances the work of Bible translation for men and women around the world, and we love the work they're doing. When our roots grow deep in Scripture, that's where we discover true security, true identity, and true hope. 
And when we really discover who we are in Christ through God's Word, we're better equipped to reach others in our communities, families, and even people around the world with the power of Scripture. Wycliffe Bible Translators now has a ministry for women that gives you opportunities to help other women around the world get access to God's Word through Bible translation and literacy projects. You'll also find resources and community to encourage you in your own walk with Jesus. Visit Wycliffe.org truth today to find out more. Okay, back to the show. And so, to your point, Ray, what he does at verse 3, so I turned my attention to the Lord God, to seek Him by prayer and petitions, with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Mm -hmm. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Mm -hmm. And then he begins this really beautiful prayer. I'll just read a few verses of it, and then I want us to talk about it. I won't read the whole thing. It's quite long. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Ah, Lord, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps His gracious covenant with those who love Him and keep His commands, we have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, and turned away from Your commands and ordinances. We have not listened to Your servants, the prophets, who spoke in Your name to our kings, leaders, ancestors, and all the people of the land. Lord, righteousness belongs to You, but this day public shame belongs to us, mm. the men of Judah, the residents of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are near and those who are far in all the countries where you have banished them because of the disloyalty they have shown toward you. Lord, public shame belongs to us, to our kings, our leaders, and our ancestors, because we have sinned against you. Compassion and forgiveness belongs to the Lord our God, though we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the Lord our God by following his instructions that he set before us through his servants, the prophets. I'll stop here, but the first part of verse 11 all Israel has broken your law and turned away, refusing to obey you, mm -hmm. which just Romans 3.23, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like all have sinned and fall short. And so he's confessing, like Daniel is confessing his sin, but he's confessing the sin of God's people. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a lot of times in worship, we will participate in corporate confession where we are confessing together, mm -hmm. but... Daniel is praying alone, but he's confessing a kind of a corporate sin. Mm -hmm. And so that distinction is interesting to me. I find in the Old Testament when there are prayers like this, where a person, you know, Ezra, I think, does this, and I'm sure there are other places where someone is confessing the sin of their people mm -hmm. and their part in it, but also beyond their part, and sometimes sin that has come before them, before even their time. I find that we, in 21st century church, that we are tempted <laughs> to just do a direct pick and pull, you know, like this is about us, or this is about our country, or is the correct interpretation here, like this is the people of God mm -hmm. who he's confessing the sin of God's people, which, you know, it reminds me of Jen last week saying that what you're reading is for them and for then. It is for a, a certain people in a certain time, but it's also for us, the mm -hmm. church, and for always. Mm -hmm. I really liked that because I think it's helpful because I think what we're tempted to do is make it is one or the other. For us, for now, for always, for our context. And that's mm -hmm. not, you know, that doesn't quite work. But I'm going to stop talking because I want to hear Dr. Hayes help us read this and understand it rightly. I think I agree with everything you said, okay? I think you're seeing good things there in that. You know, he is summarizing Jeremiah, the whole book, okay? And so this is, we talked about what's the difference from Daniel and the rest of the prophets Right here, he sounds just like they do. And so Jeremiah begs and pleads. He preaches for 40 years, begging the nation to repent and to turn back to God for disobeying the covenant. And they don't. Nobody does. And so that's why the Babylonians come, and that's why they're destroyed, and that's why they're carried off into captivity, and that's why Daniel's in Babylon, because of this disobedience and failure to repent that his forefathers, his ancestors, and in him, for him, it's a real, I mean, this is grandpa he's talking about, okay, who did right. this. So it's not just some nebulous people in the far distant past. And I think he realizes that as he comes to God and is asking, 
is this not the time when we can return? You know, can we not return to the promised land? That's kind of what the prophets had promised and Jeremiah had alluded to. But he realizes that we got some serious reckoning, you know, to admit and to acknowledge our sin and all of this and our failure to listen to these prophets like Jeremiah who were never listened to. And so I think he is, it is a corporate prayer for him, the nation, his family as well. Nehemiah does the same thing, you know, in the first chapter of Nehemiah in a similar context, saying that I'm getting ready to lead people back to the promised land. Let's pray a prayer of confession. So how we apply this, you know, to us, I think that, you know, one thing I see is that pretty consistent throughout the Bible is God just does not like arrogant people. Okay. Yeah. He doesn't like us to be arrogant. He likes the streak of humility. And for us to somehow think that everything's fine and we're fine and I don't need to say I'm sorry and I don't need to repent and who, you know, why should I? I think it's that attitude to begin with that what I see, God doesn't care for that kind of. And he's much more responsive and it's much more the model we have to let's be repentant. If we're going to err on our understanding of it, let's err on the side of, you know, confessing our corporate guilt as well. And so, you know, I think it's not a bad prayer to pray for your own self and then your family. What have my kids done that as a parent, I'm somewhat responsible for? And you can confess Mm -hmm. that as well. Then what about my whole family? And, you know, without beating yourself up and, you know, sliding into depression or anything. But, and then I think even nationally as responsibility for things the country has done for us to say, you know, we may not claim to have a total understanding of everything, but we pray and confess sins that our country has done. You know, what have we done? How have we, what have we done? You know, in this era of racial tension and challenge mm-hmm. and, you know, just speaking as a white person, we tend to think everything's fine, it's been fine. And our African-American brothers and sisters and other people of color are saying, no, it's not fine, hasn't been fine, terrible yeah. things are happening. And so a lot of times we're oblivious to this and we're oblivious to the fact you know, that we have hurt them, done terrible things to them. And so I would say that's a good application if we're praying corporately to also confess things that we've done as a country that we may not, you know, be that aware of, but that other people are identifying for us. So one other important thing to notice, he changes names for God here in chapter 9. Okay, all throughout Daniel, one of the peculiarities of Daniel is that they don't use Yahweh, okay, the Lord, that the whole rest of the book, it's Elohim, it's God. You have God or the God of Daniel or the God of heaven. You have these terms, okay? The prophets don't use that. They use God some, but they focus on Yahweh, which we get translated in all capital letters, the L-O-R-D. So even beginning, Mm -hmm. look at early, verse 2 of 9, you know, according to the word of the Lord, those are all Mm -hmm. capital letters. So this is the proper name, Yahweh. And Yahweh is the covenant name. So that's the name that God uses when he enters into covenant. covenant. And presence is related to this. You guys talked about presence earlier. But the presence of God coming, this is the name he uses when he's in close relationship. They use the other word, Elohim, more of God of the whole world. Okay, and God of Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, Elohim creates heavens and earth. Chapter 2, he creates people. Now they use Yahweh because he's entering into relationship. So in the relationship with Israel, it's known as Yahweh. So when Daniel's talking about the nations as a whole in all of world history, then he's using the term Elohim. But here in 9, when he's picking back up on Israel's specific relationship, calling back on these promises and citing Jeremiah, now it's back to Yahweh, and he's using Yahweh for that relationship. So I think that's an important observation as they switch names here as he gets into the prayer. (laughs) I love that observation about Elohim and Yahweh. And I knew that, you know, in that first part of chapter 9, that this was definitely like a calling covenant to attention with God, but I hadn't noticed the small caps Lord. And I'm so glad that you pointed that out. That's so interesting. I also think that this prayer is 
even beautiful in format, like that it begins with worship and then it leads directly into confession and it follows like 11 through 14 is just just recognition of the God and the justice that he is. And then, you know, sort of 15 through 19 is just a plea. Yeah. And it's so humble. Daniel's so humble in his plea that it's just, it stands in such contrast to everything we've been reading in the book of Daniel about the kings and their pride. And for him to say, you know, as he's asking God, you know, make your face shine on the desolate sanctuary for the Lord's sake. Listen closely, my God, and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that bears your name. And then he says, for we are not presenting our petitions before you based on our righteous acts, but based on your abundant compassion. Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. Lord, listen and act. My God, for your own sake, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. Yeah. When we were talking about the prayer of kind of confession of our corporate sin, that distinction, there's the for your sake, you know, for the Lord's sake and for your sake, God. That is a distinctive phrase that really fundamentally changes, even sometimes when we confess, you know, the sin of our generation or generations past, when we ask God to act and to forgive and to restore, not just for, yes, out of justice and for redemption and restoration, but for His sake, not for our glory, or so that, you know, I think so often we we want to reverse kind of a course that we seem to be on as a, you know, whether it be as a nation or the church mm-hmm. or something where we just, we see... As the people of God. Yeah, we see a pattern of sin, right? Mm-hmm. And we want to repent. We want to turn. But it is crucial that we want that because of who God is. Right. Not for our own, mm-hmm. the writing of our own selves for our sake. Yeah. Yeah, You know, that's there's, a, uh-huh. there's a difference there, and it's hard for me to articulate, but it feels really fundamental. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And it's kind of this according to you as you want, or according mm-hmm. what's best for your kingdom. You know, what's right. best, mm-hmm. you know, in our sense, and I think today, you know, our prayer should be according to what's best for your church. You know, mm-hmm, we right. pray, well, please, we pray for this and this and this in accordance with your plan, what's best, not for me, but for the church. And so, yeah, I would agree. I would agree with that. And then our friend Gabriel comes back. He does. <laughs> Once more in the Old Testament. Yeah, he comes back. I'm in verse 20. Presenting my petition before the Lord my God concerning the holy mountain of God while I was praying, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the first vision, I appreciate that clarification, (laughs) reached me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me this explanation. Daniel, I've come now to give you understanding. At the beginning of your petitions, an answer went out. What? And I have come to give it. For you are treasured by God. So consider the message and understand the vision. And then he goes on to give him an interpretation. And he says this again later. There will mm-hmm. be something similar where it's like, right there. Oh. when, yeah, sorry, where is it? It's uh, in. We might be thinking about different things, but that you are a man treasured by God. We see that a couple of times and it's just really cool. But maybe that's not what you were saying. Oh, no, sorry. You're right. So that's in Daniel 10 verse 11 where mm-hmm. he says it again. Daniel, you are a man treasured by God. And then in verse 12, don't be afraid, Daniel, he said to me, for from the first day that you purposed to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your prayers were heard. Like there's this clear, it's not subtle at all to say like, God's not bound by time. He's Mm -hmm. not bound by, you know, as soon as your prayer went out, Mm -hmm. it's almost like the answer was just sitting on the ready, Mm -hmm. just waiting for him to begin praying. It's Isaiah. It's the even before you ask, I will answer. I've been dispatched. Uh I've been dispatched. You are still typing the text message and ding, you get the other message. And God's answering the deal is kind of how this reads. No, I think absolutely. I think it's cool. And the time, you know, the response, he says, I bring the response to you. And so you've got that time connection. And then notice what's happened, too. It's the 70 years of Jeremiah that prompts Daniel to pray the prayer. Yeah. And so Daniel sees Jerusalem in ruins, and so he's hoping that's part of his prayer. 
that somehow Jerusalem will be rebuilt, that there'll be a time of recovery. Nehemiah is going to do the same thing for Jerusalem in his prayer in, in chapter 1. So then Gabriel's going to show up and say, well, we got a little more to say about that 70 <laughs> number, okay? Mm-hmm. And that's where all his 77s and all this other stuff is coming on. He's saying it's a little more complex than what you are thinking. And there's a bigger restoration. There's some other things coming. There's This is all tied into a whole lot of other things that are happening in the interim period as well, tied into this restoration. So I think he picks up on that 70 year and then starts to explain and broaden it out. And this is where it gets really challenging. This is where it gets really challenging. Let's continue to talk about chapters 10, 11, and 12. You mentioned a couple of times chapter 11, Dr. Hayes, so I want to hear about that. But I also see a phrase at the end of chapter 10 that is familiar. And the phrase is, don't be afraid. And we have Michael showing up a little bit too, which complicates Yeah, and they mention that, okay, that Michael comes and helps out. Uh, yeah, and because one of this, the chief princes. Yeah, and this is, is weird, Michael. okay? All right, that's what I mean. We don't know schmatz about the angelic world, okay? So he seems <laughs> to say, he says, I was coming, you know, but I was delayed by some other angelic being is what's implied that's associated with the Persian Empire, and they had some kind of conflict, and Michael helps him overcome that, and so now he comes and he's actually shown up to continue to talk to Daniel. There seems to be a lot more some kind of cosmic struggle going on between heavenly beings, good ones and bad ones, that we just don't know anything about. I'm comfortable with not knowing schmutz about this, (laughs) and it's so fascinating. Even the end of 10 in 20, he says— Do you know why I've come to you? I must return at once to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I leave, the prince of Greece will come. I'm sorry. What's happening? (laughs) Yeah. It's just the time and space. And the spiritual realm is more apparent here than in many other places in Scripture. But also, it leaves us just sitting and going like, Still a mystery. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, here's what's happening. 2 Corinthians 10, (laughs) which we've got paired with this reading. Verse 3, For although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. And then Ephesians 6.12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, spiritual forces in the heavens. It feels like just like a glimpse behind the curtain. You know, like there's just something yeah. that's all, it's always happening. It reminds me of every Frank Peretti book I've ever read. And <laughs> when I was a teenager and just, you know, that there's a battle, the ultimate battle is being waged. Being waged and at the same time already won. Again. Again. The mystery. I don't understand yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, we live in a rational, scientific-based world, and we tend to dismiss that and live like it's not there. And then we run into scriptures like this occasionally where they're going to stress, no, it's very much there. And there yeah. is this big battle going on. And then the book of Revelation is going to pick back up on that and portray right. how this plays over. And then, Daniel, they're going back and forth, Okay. They're going back and forth, I think, from the heavenly spirit-fighting situation here with Helman, the Prince of Persia, and they're going to slide down into the earthly battles where people are fighting King of the North, King of the South. Here's Alexander the Great. Here's they're defeating the Persian Empire. And then they're going to go with that, and here's Antiochus, Epiphanes, okay, destroying the temple, but then they're going to say, it's. but it's more than that. There's a bigger picture here. This is also a picture of this ultimate conflict that's going to come with the Antichrist. And Jesus will pick up on that as well. So that's part of apocalyptic is to move back and forth between mm-hmm. these different worlds here, our world, the future world, the heavenly world, and kind of blur these things together. And it makes it exciting and challenging at the same time. We like things to be exact. We want to say this is exactly this is this and this is that and things are clear. It's just not that way. It's a little fuzzy, and they are sliding back and forth, okay, from one world to the next, from the present to the future, to two different futures is also what's taking place here. The overall message comes through. Our side wins at the end. You know, it's the same as you see in Revelation, you know, and to take heart and be strong. (laughs) Be not afraid. This fear not that you brought up that we saw so often in Isaiah that in difficult times, and it's a pretty consistent theme throughout Scripture that we see constantly in the Old Testament and New Testament, both, you know, Jesus telling his disciples as well, you know, why were you so afraid? 
you know, there's the boat was about to sink, you know. And yeah. I had good reason to be afraid, but we have this. And it's a good word for us today, you know, all the stuff yes, that's out there that scares us. It's just encouraging to see God telling Daniel and throughout the Bible, just fear not, don't be afraid, trust in me. I've got, you know, have not lost control of the world, yeah. even Amen. though you guys are yeah. in exile here, you know, I've got control. Well, and I'll admit that in this day 18 reading where we're reading, you know, the biggest chunk of chapter 11, it's overwhelming to me because it's so much like the fighting and the back and forth and the north and the south and all that. And what I can't remember if it was Nancy Guthrie or Whitney Caps who recently said to us to cling to what's clear. Hmm. Do you remember that? I Maybe don't. I heard it somewhere else then. I don't know. No. Source to be determined. Okay. I like it too. I like that, like, you know, instead of feeling like, by the way, we talked with Jen last week that when we open scripture that we're just supposed to get it somehow and that there's no, there is payoff to just reading it and mm-hmm. seeing what's there. And even if you don't understand it, like knowing what it says. And to me, when I read this passage in 11, it just makes me look for Jesus and it makes me long for Jesus. Yeah, It makes me long for the peace that he brings that lasts mm-hmm. and that is everlasting. It makes me long for Revelation 21. And I think any scripture, and I hope this is true of all scripture as I read, but any scripture that makes me look for Jesus you know, that, that is news. something. Yeah. 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 And it's good. But there's so much with the kings that so many times there was a phrase that was repeated, like the king did whatever he wanted. The king will do mm-hmm. whatever he wants. And just how true that is of not necessarily with individual people, but just government, you know, just governments pushing and pulling and political parties pushing and pulling. And just for the end of the push and pull mm-hmm. is what I look for <laughs> and what I long for. But, you know, Daniel gives us a really sweet payoff there at the end, and I'm so thankful for it. Just those last verses is this in chapter 12. I feel like we've earned it. We've got to read some of this. All right, let's do it. Dr. Hayes, what are we seeing here? He's talking about kingdoms and God, you know, ultimately his kingdom will come, reign forever. He's mentioned this several times, that you're looking at human kingdoms and they're going to all eventually fail. And they're not the answer, no matter how powerful they look, God's kingdom. Here, though, he gets even a little personal, okay, 12. When you get to two, now suddenly there's a little more specifics. And really, for the first clear time in the Old Testament, we have a pretty strong verse discussing resurrection. And, you know, the Old Testament Mm -hmm. is pretty vague. While it's clear as anything in the New Testament, as a doctrine of the resurrection from the dead, that in the Old Testament— You have to look hard for it. It's a little fuzzy concept. They don't talk a lot about clear the afterlife and that concept of resurrection. But here in verse 2, as Daniel looks to the future, this multitudes, I'll read it, mine's in NIV, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. So he is looking to this statement of everlasting life. Well, it's one of the few places in the Old Testament where you see that hope pretty clearly stated in the idea of being resurrected. So it's a great way to end this, you know, the book as a whole and all of these kingdom things going on, that the resurrection is going to play a huge role in how all this thing is pulled together at the end as God unfolds his plan. And it's very mysterious. The end here. What I love about it is that Daniel's asking some more questions, right? Like you get the sense that how long? Yeah, I mean yeah. that he's that's got what we're the ear. Too. And he's, how long? Yeah, that's exactly right. And this is verse five. I, Daniel, looked, and two others were standing there, one on the bank of this river and one on the other. One of them said to the man dressed in linen who was above the water of the river, "How long until the end of these wondrous things?" Then I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the water of the river. He raised both his hands toward heaven and swore by him who lives eternally that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. Clear as mud, right? Yeah. Yeah. When the power of the holy people is shattered, all these things will be completed. I heard, but I did not understand. (laughs) Same, Daniel. So I asked, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these things? He said, Go on your way, Daniel, for the words are secret and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, cleansed, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly. None of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. 
and then he gives some numbers that <laughs> I don't understand. Well, maybe but related the to the time, we... time, and half a times as well, the numbers, you know. The time, time, and half a time. Uh-huh. Right. When Ryan asks me when I'll be ready to leave, I'm going to be like, <laughs> it'll be a time, time, and half a time. <laughs> <laughs> but verse 13, I'm thankful for verse 13. But as for you, Daniel, go on your way to the end. You will rest, and then you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance at the end of days. Thanks be to God. Daniel doesn't get all the answers, maybe exactly the uh-uh. way he wanted. Uh-uh. But as I think Jen Wilkin would say, like that was for him and for them, yeah. and that is for us and for always. Yeah. yeah, I love the selected reading to follow that for day nineteen from Second Peter three. Verse 8 says, Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay His promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And then verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness. As you, Amanda, as you, Dr. Hayes, as you, Rachel, and you listeners, wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. Because of that day, the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt with heat. But based on His promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Amen. Yeah. That felt like a benediction, Rachel. I know. I was saving <laughs> Revelation for our benediction, but man, Second Peter brought it. That Thanks. was beautiful. Well, I feel a bit like we've run a, lo- a race <laughs> <laughs> in the last three weeks of working through this book, but what a joy to wrap it by getting to be students, though. Yes. Like, um, really, truly sit down with our professor and just thank you for teaching us, Dr. Well, Hayes. we're all students in this book. It's tough, you know, and it's a challenge. And it's this angel on the tour that's, that's telling us what this stuff means, you know. And we're just really grateful. And I'm so thankful for the gift of Scripture. And when we we read through books of the Bible together and don't, skip through the parts, like chapter 11, where I'm just like, oh, north, south, yada, yada. Like, when yeah. we don't yada, yada scripture, don't, don't yada, and yada we scripture. really yeah. read through it, I never regret yeah. having read mm-hmm. through it. Yeah, know and, what it says. Know yes, what it says. Just to know what it says, and then to learn and to build on that, mm-hmm. and to know that there is something for me to learn in every verse, mm-hmm. on every page, in every chapter, in every book from now until the end of my days, you know, that it reminds me of your grandma, Mm -hmm. you know, she's just going to keep, keep on reading. Ray visited her grandmother recently and she just keeps reading through and she just, where are you grandma? Well, I'm Nahum here in Nahum. (laughs) What are you doing in Nahum? Just reading through the Bible. That's what I do. (laughs) And just may it be so of us. Yeah. 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 And you never exhaust it all. I mean, I've been at this a long, long time, you know, studying and you never get to the end. You never say, oh yeah, I got it all. There's always deeper stuff. There's always more stuff. There's always engaging. There's things that you read differently this year than you read last year, and God speaks to you a little differently each time you go through. And so, yeah, it's just, it's a fantastic journey that God has given us his word that we can do this and read this and learn about him. So absolutely, yeah, I love it. I love the word and what it does, what it means, and the encouragement I get from it. Yeah, I agree. Dr. Hayes, would you be willing to read for us That very last passage, it's page 108 in your book from Revelation chapter 1. I know that I called the Second Peter reading our benediction. but We can have to. Either we get two benedictions or this is our (laughs) true one, because I don't want to wrap this study without reading this beautiful picture of the Son of Man. I mean, we read about this a little bit last week. Not a little bit. We read it in chapter 7 last week. We have to read this out loud. Dr. Hayes, would you read it for us? All right, sure. Revelation 1, 4 to 8. John. To the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look. He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Thank you for reading that. Dr. Hayes, you've been a delightful guest. We're so grateful. Thank you. Thank you for your years and years of faithful study that has brought us to this hour conversation where we could just glean from you. We're so thankful. Well, you guys have such a great ministry. This is just incredible. I want to encourage you in this, you know, to what a wonderful ministry to encourage people to read the Bible and to get into the Bible each day. And I know you're targeted women in this, but come on, this is great for everybody, you know, to sit in and learn to study, That's right. learn to study Scripture like this. This is great and read it. So I want to commend you guys and just praise the Lord for you and your work here. Well, thank, thank you, you so much. This is the end of our Daniel series, which means that next week we get to start a four-week series on the book of Proverbs. Our own Russ Ramsey will be joining us for week one, which I'm so looking forward to. I'm so excited to have him in that conversation. We can still claim him as our own, right? Yeah. Okay, I mean, sure. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. He's your pastor, and he used to be here at That's She right. Truth, so it's fine. Russ, we're looking forward to you. But until next week, Dr. Hayes, what do we tell them? Keep opening your Bibles. Oh,